Hey there, and welcome to the Oscar Death Race podcast, where it ain't over till the final credits roll. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. So first off, thanks to you for listening to this podcast. This is a bit of a crazy idea of mine that I wanted to, you know, give a shot. Uh, so thanks for having taken that leap of faith with me, and we'll just see where this podcast goes. Um, for those of you who somehow clicked on this podcast but don't know what the Oscar Death Race is, a little bit of an explanation. So the Oscars, as most people know, are an award show honoring the films and movies that came out in the previous calendar year, usually held in the early winter of each year. Um, as you know, there are categories such as Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, as well as other categories. Now, if someone said, let's watch every Oscar that's been nominated, most people would think, okay, let's watch you know the 10 Best Picture nominees. But there are actually a lot more Oscars than that. There are, you know, about two dozen categories, um, and overall, most years is somewhere between fifty and sixty nominees. So, the idea here is to watch every single nominee for every single category. Now, obviously, there was some overlap, but that's still a pretty impressive feat to try to take on. This actually originated uh, in 2009 by blogger uh, Sarah Bunting, who co-founded the site Television Without Pity. Um, and over the you know last 10 years or so, this has kind of gained a bit of a cult following as you know a bit of a challenge, so to speak, um, to try to complete this this task. Um, not everyone's able to succeed, um, but you know it's kind of the effort of it that that makes it worth pursuing. Um, shout out to the Oscar Death Race subreddit um, if you are interested in participating. So a bit about myself, I live here in New York City, uh, which you know is a bit of a leg up when it comes to the Oscar death race, just because a lot of films come out in New York that might not come out elsewhere, and we have a lot of indie films that uh, indie theaters that help, especially with some of the more obscure categories such as animation and documentary sorts. Um, you know, I watch a lot of TV, a lot of media. I think I'm somewhere in the 70s for the number of films I've watched this year that are brand new films, not things I've watched before. Um, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. So, you know, this podcast was kind of a, a way for me to kind of combine those two loves of mine together. So the plan for this podcast is, you know, this is going to be a weekly show, but it's not going to be something that goes on indefinitely, obviously, because I have a bit of a deadline to try to hit. Um, there's going to be a nine-episode kind of limited run, so for at least for the Oscars 2020. Um, if this is successful, maybe I'll try again in 2021 as well. Um, but, you know, the idea is I'm going to just talk about the films that were nominated or are likely to be nominated if we don't know those yet. Um, and, you know, it'll be one part film review of my take on the film, one part trying to predict who's actually going to win the Oscar in that particular category, uh, and one part documentary of my Descent into Madness trying to watch everything. Um, a little bit more than nitty-gritty. Uh, so the timeline for this is that the Oscars nominations are released on January 13th. If you're listening to this when this first releases, it should be around you know early December. So obviously we don't know who actually has been nominated for the Oscars yet. However, there is a site goldderby.com that where people can submit you know bets and experts can also try to predict who they think will be nominated for the Oscars. So based on that list, I compiled a list of the most likely site, uh, films to be nominated for each category on there. Um, the top ten for best film or best picture, um, closer to ten or eleven, just because some are you know borderline on on the ten the ten slot, um, and top five for each other category that they have up there. Um, so for the month of December, until we actually get the nominees, I'm going to go ahead and talk about who from the best picture category, which I've some, somehow managed to see most of them this year, um, and my thoughts on all those films. Um, I also seen pretty much all of the animated, nom- likely animated nominated films. So uh, I'll also be talking about those as well as an episode this month. So today is the first episode, December 10th. Uh, we're going to p- talk about four films in the second half of this episode. 
Um, episode 2 will be next week, December 17th, with more Best Picture nominees. Episode 3, on December 24th, I'll take a break, talk about the five likely animated nominees. And then on December 4th, um, I'll talk about some of the Best Picture nom- go back to talking about the Best Picture nominees, uh, including two that will have come out on Christmas Day, which I couldn't talk about before that point. Um, I'm actually going to be taking a small trip overseas um, for the second half, for the end of December, early January. So we'll have a bit of a break uh, for the new year before we come back on episode five on January 14th. Um, So again, the nominations will have been released on uh, the 13th, as well as the Golden Globes will have actually come out the night before. So I'll, you know, do a little bit of a recap, see where we stand in the Oscar death race, um, what we've actually been able to hit on successfully, and which ones uh, we're going to have to scramble to try to find out. Um, and hopefully, you know, over the break, I'll have made a little bit of a dent into the viewing uh, and, and talk about, you know, some more films I saw over the break. Uh, episode 6 will be on January 21st, um, and hopefully I'll be able to talk about some of the production categories, you know, costume design, production design, sound editing, and so on. Um, episode 7 on 28th, um, again, like I mentioned before, I'm lucky to live in New York, and there's a theater here, the IFC Center, um, that has all of the animated sorts, documentary sorts, and documentaries that they, they screen uh, for people here, so I'm going to be lucky enough to not have to scramble to try to find those, and I'll talk about those uh, films then, and maybe some of the international films, hopefully as well. Um, and then episode 8th on February 4th will be the last show before the ceremony on February 9th to, you know, talk about any loose ends that I mopped up or that I may have, you know, missed maybe and, and have to scramble in it last week to find out. And then on episode 9th on February 10th will be kind of a postmortem. I'll talk about, you know, who won, who didn't won, if my predictions were correct. And then also talk about how successful I was in actually being able to watch all the films nominated uh, for an Oscar. Um, and throughout the uh, throughout the these eight nine weeks or so, uh, I'm actually going to also be talking about the other awards. So, so in addition to the Oscars, you know, there are a lot of the guild specific uh, awards: the SGA, Screen Guild Actors, the DGA Directors Guild Awards, um, the uh, WGA Writers Guild Awards, as well as you know other awards as well. Um, depending on when those uh, different organizations and guilds have their awards. I'll talk about, you know, who won those and who what it means for who will be most likely to actually win the Oscar in the end. But for now, uh, let's go ahead and take a look at the films that are I'm going to talk about. First up, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. According to goldderby.com, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is expected to be nominated for nine categories, the most, the second most of any film this year. It's expected to be nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Director for Quentin Tarantino, Best Actor for Leonardo DiCaprio, Best Supporting Actor for Brad Pitt, Original Screenplay, Cinematographer, Costume Design, Editing, and Production Design. It is currently the favorite for Supporting Actor, Costume, and Production Design. Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood premiered in, at the Cannes Film Festival on May 21st and released in the U.S. theatrically July 26th. It was also re-released October 25th with additional scenes and is currently available on Blu-ray since November 22nd and will be available for physical release on December 10th. So... I actually confess and haven't seen that many Tarantino films. I've only seen three, uh, and Once Upon, a Th- Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was my second. The first one I saw was Hateful Eight a couple of years ago um, when, it, so when it first came out, and I've since seen uh, Pulp Fiction, um, luckily at an event in a theater. 
Um, but I saw Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm gonna definitely tongue twist over that title repeatedly. So for, apologies for that. But I saw it uh, in 70 millimeter on film here in New York at the Village East Cinemas in the Lower East Side, uh, which was definitely a great experience. And you know, whenever I have the opportunity to see a film in that format, I definitely, definitely do. Um, so, you know, from what I know about Tarantino films and, and just this film in general, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a film that is by someone who deeply loves film and the art of cinema and the culture around cinema. Um, and that's what the film is about. Um, it's about the film, about being in Hollywood and about the creation of film. So it's kind of very meta in that way. And if there's anything that I know that that Oscar voters tend to like, it's kind of that novel, that navel gazely time uh, type of film. Um, La La Land was definitely a contender for Best Picture a couple of years ago, partly because it was you know about the magic and splendor of Hollywood. Um, but even you know in in all the details about you know the backlot. Uh, the backlot scenes and, and oh and also this is specifically Tarantino's love for this very specific um, genre of film the western in a sense um, and, and kind of the tail end of that era um, and how it affected him as a filmmaker but everything not just from you know the, the backlots and, and the films on a, on a film set where they were filming the western but also the thoughts of just being around Hollywood and the posters and all the production design that went into it definitely just shows the craft and care Tarantino and the rest of the crew had for the for this uh, topic and this film and you know that's definitely something that that keeps it in contention for best picture um, one of the definite strengths of this film was Leo and Brad's chemistry um, as actor and, and stunt coordinator slash gopher um, you know Either of them definitely could have been been best picture. Either of them could have been best supporting, or sorry, best actor. Either of them could have been best supporting actor. Obviously, the studio chose to go with Leo um, as best best actor, so they don't split the vote um, on for the campaigning. Um, but just the way they were, like Leo, for example, he plays an actor who has a particular style of acting for TV that may or may not transition to uh, film. Um, and you know, playing an actor who's not that good at acting is one of the most difficult things you can do. And Leo does that amazingly. Um, you know, Brad Pitt is you know definitely a lot less loquacious than than Leo is, but kind of the, through his nonverbal acting and his physicality, especially in the scene against Bruce Lee, um, played by Mike Mo, um, you know, you just, get, you just get a sense of the life that this supposed character that that Brad plays has had. Um, and juxtaposing that further, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting part in the film, which I'm not going to spoil too much, where, you know, Leo is on set, you know, pretending to be, acting to be a cowboy, whereas, you know, Brad's character ends up actually kind of almost being an actual cowboy. Um, and just kind of that juxtaposition is, is something really interesting I found, I found fun to notice afterwards. Um, obviously, this film is kind of set in... Tarantino's famous, you know, alternative history. Um, some people say it's a trilogy along with Django Unchained and, and, and Glorious Bastards. But that being said, it is also the anniversary of the um, of the Manson murders, um, and I think respected that that pretty well by you know not giving a voice to to Charles Manson and and, and kind of minimizing the role of Roman Polanski and just focusing on, frankly, Sharon Tate played by Margot Robbie. And kind of what she represents, and and kind of the loss of innocence in in cinema, and what what her death represented there, and how this alternative history kind of allows for the wonder of Hollywood to continue onward. Um, you know, I think there was there was definitely a little bit of a brouhaha. I'm in, kind of in, in, involved in the Asian American community about the portrayal of Bruce Lee, um, and you know, kind of my thoughts on that is that you know part of Part of the film in general is that it blurs the reality between reality and fiction. Um, 
And, you know, in that particular scene where, where Bruce Lee's kind of shown, you know, in the film to be a bit of a jackass, um, you know, he and then people in, in real life were saying, especially his daughter, that he wasn't like that. Um, that particular scene is actually in the flashback by Brad's character, which in my head kind of points to, you know, maybe it's not necessarily a reliable thing. It's kind of just his envisioning of what happened that he could, you know, take on Bruce Lee and, and so on. And, um, you know, I think that that kind of is part of the larger themes um, without, again, spoiling too much of the ending. Um, there's it kind of the, the, the line is blurred between what is reality and what is fiction for these particular characters. And that's kind of, you know, for someone who loves Hollywood and the and the ability of Hollywood and films to take people out of their everyday life and bring them into a to a fantasy, a film about that and about in in on in an alternative history itself, combining the alternative history and and reality of of what is, um, it's again a fairy tale once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, so you know the film is surprisingly not violent until the end, which kind of subverts what what most people expect out of a Tarantino film. But it definitely keeps your attention throughout. And, you know, again, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably also trying to do an Oscar death race. So I can't say you should definitely watch it because, you know, you kind of have to watch it for the Oscar death race. But if you're just listening casually, um, definitely check this out. It's super enjoyable. Um, I definitely want to go back and watch the rest of the Tarantino films um, and kind of com- see what this compares to that. Um, but, yeah, once upon a time in Hollywood. So the next film we'll talk about is Ford versus Ferrari or as it's known in uh, other regions, Le Mans 66. Um, Ford v. Ferrari is, according to the gold uh in the running for Best Picture, uh, Best Editing, and Sound Design. So there are two sound categories, sound effects, sound design. Frankly, they're pretty much identical most years, so I'm just going to call them the sound categories. Um, with that being said, uh, Ford v. Ferrari premiered at the Telluride Film Festival on August 30th, um, and then later was released November 15th by uh, Fox, who, again, as most people know, has been acquired by Disney. So Ford v. Ferrari, uh, I saw at the AMC 25 Theater here in New York City, um, actually on the Dolby Theater. So if you are going to plan to watch this, I would definitely recommend trying to see it on the, on the screen with the best sound system you can because I think it definitely earns that nomination for you know best sound design. Um, and a lot of that has to do with... So I've, I listen to a lot of podcasts, obviously, and one of the podcasts I listen to uh, is a so-called 20,000 Hertz. Um, and it talks a lot about you know kind of the sound design of cars in movies, um, and kind of made me pay attention to the way cars sound in general. You know, when and it's something that we don't really think about, but when you're in a car, right? And and there's kind of a a whole element for mechanics where you know there's that, that mythic mechanic who can just listen to a car once and kind of diagnose the problems there. Um, when it goes or whatever, whatever sound your car makes, a, a good mechanic, you know, supposedly can tell it by sound. And I don't think that's too far off from the truth, to be honest, you know, again, based on the podcast I listen to, but they take that and they make the sound experience of listening to the car's race really compelling. Um, You know, I think, and I think that definitely goes a long way. So, you know, obviously beyond the sound design, um, you know, this is a film based on, you know, real historical events. Um, Christian Bale and Matt Damon play, um, you know, two characters um, who who were involved in the Le Mans 66 race, which is a 24-hour endurance uh, sports car race, um, 1966, where 
as the title suggests, uh, Ford Motor Company, you know, goes up against uh, the Ferrari company, um, you know, kind of European versus American race car. But really, you know, based on that, you'd think it'd be rah-rah Ford. But really, the, the story um, kind of deals really more about the main characters and their conflict with Ford. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that they say about the way that Ford has been managed, the way Ford's structure is and of so many different um layers to the organization versus the lean team that they want to run and and how that that helps them with their success and kind of the the corporate meddling that that Ford kind of has some had had in the in the race um and and celebrating kind of you know these these sportsmen these drivers who had a pure love for racing basically um again this is also like a a two two plus hour movie um and you know you could definitely look up to see what happens. Um, and if you're a car fan, you probably know what happens in in 1966 and to these characters later on. Um, and you really feel for for what ha- ends up happening to them at the end, um, without spoiling too much. Um, but that said, if you haven't seen it, you know maybe go in without seeing. I I didn't look up anything about what happened in this race. I definitely enjoyed it. Um, is it likely to win Best Picture? I don't think so. The competition's really good. Um, honestly, you know, some people might argue that one or both of them should win either a best actor, best supporting actor nomination. Eh, looking at the field, it looks like a really tough, tough, tough sell for for one of them to kind of take that spot. Um, but that said, you know, I definitely appreciated this film. It, it, in again, listening to the car sounds and and kind of the way it portrayed driving in general is just so different. Um, than what I've seen in other racing racing movies thus far, which granted hasn't been many, um, but I definitely appreciated the view. So you know, definitely check out Ford v Ferrari if you get a chance. Um, again, if you're doing the Oscar Death Race, you probably will. Next up is the South Korean film Parasite. According to GoldDerby.com, Parasite is in the running for Best Picture, Best Director by Bong Joon Ho, Original Screenplay also by Bong Joon Ho, Editing. And while this isn't an official category on goldlibby.com, it is most likely going to win foreign language best foreign language film according to pretty much every publication and every critic that I've seen uh, online so far. Parasite premiered at the Cannes Film Festival May 21st, where it ended up winning the Palm d'Or, or Golden Palm, the highest award at the film festival unanimously. This is the first South Korean film to do so, and the first film that has been unanimously voted for this since 2013. It later premiered in South Korea in, on May 30th, and it later came to the U.S., distributed by Neon, on October 11th. It's been a slow rollout, you know, a slow platform release to the indie art theaters first, you know, New York, L.A., and slowly rolling out over time to other cities. But, you know, when it premiered, it had the highest per theater average since La La Land and the best per theater average for any foreign language film. Um, so Neon's doing a great job with this rollout, definitely you know, making sure that the hype stays alive for this film, and word of mouth on this has been amazing. Um, I saw this you know, fi- film, luckily, on that opening weekend here in New York at the IFC Center on you know, Thursday night after work, actually, at the 6 p.m. showing. Um, this was actually the first showing um, that IFC sold out for the weekend. Um, it had, you know, uh, director uh, Bong Joon Ho as well as the the lead actor or one of the lead actors, Song Kang Ho, um, appear uh, and do a quick Q and A, which you know was definitely a great experience. Um, uh, I had only seen, you know, Bong Joon Ho's other film. I I seen his film uh, Snowpiercer, um, as 
I've only seen his film, uh, other film Snowpiercer, as well as the other film, his his Netflix film Okja. Um, you know, both of which have socially conscious you know, themes to them. Um, so this definitely made me want to go back and check out the rest of his work. Um, you know, that weekend in New York was actually kind of ridiculous because. Um, you know, again, it premiered only in New York and, and, and LA and in New York, it was actually later revealed that, um, pretty much every single sewing, including all the additional ones had been a hundred percent sold out. Um, this was, you know, what, uh, a, a gold open film. Um, so the collective gold house, um, you know, does, does these events where they buy, buy out theaters to help promote Asian and Asian American films, uh, releases, especially the high quality ones. And, you know, this was definitely one that, that they threw their support behind. Um, it's definitely been a tremendous film. Um, yeah. So w- what I liked about this film, well, first off, this is a really hard film to talk about, uh, without giving away too many spoilers, because frankly, if you haven't seen this film yet, you want to go in knowing as little as possible. Um, you know, you know that there's you know a poor family, the Kim family, and you know there's a rich family, the Park family, and somehow the Kim family interacts with the Park family. Um, I'm I'm going to try to leave it at that. There's you know lots of twists and turns, and it's really kind of hard to define honestly the genre of this film. It's oddly a very amusing film. There's a lot of comedy. Some would say black comedy. Some would say straight up comedy. Um, there's a lot of thriller elements, some mystery elements as well. Um, and again, as the strong theme of Bong Joon-ho's films, a lot of social commentary, particularly about class warfare and income inequality in South Korea, and, and more broadly speaking about capitalism in general. Um, well, you know, that, that's something you could have figured out he would do because that's what all of his films are about. Um, kind of funny, I actually saw this the same weekend as Joker, um, and there were a lot of common themes between there, as well as a lot of motifs, you know, going up and down stairs as well, again, without giving too many details. Um, the production of this was amazing, reading some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that they did with creating the sets, creating the house um, you know, that the Park family lives in, creating the neighborhood that the Kim family comes from, and, and the production that went into that and, and the details in there. Um, there are a lot of you know, nuances that comes to South, from South Korean culture that may not always translate to the uh, American audience or Western audience. You know, I'm, I'm not South Korean, but having read online from other South Koreans, you know, you know stuff like the 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 uh, widespread of, of Taiwanese um, you know Taiwanese cakes um, that that kind of plays into here and, and some stuff about you know North Korean impersonators and you know different kinds of noodles different kinds of meals and what all those indicate um, you know those won't come across culturally I think that's one of the benefits of you know having strong foreign language films is kind of being exposed and having people encouraged to go out and, and look at it more. Um, you know, I think just the the pacing of this film also was incredible. Um, it's it is a you know two two and a half hour long film, and it's 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 pretty lengthy, but you don't feel it at all. You're always on the edge of your seat, wanting to see what comes. It flows so smoothly from one scene to the next um, that you know the first half keeps it light and almost, and and then the second half what really amps up. You you start figuring out what's going to happen next, what's going to happen next. Um, again. I don't want to talk about it too much just in case you haven't seen it, though. You know, even even if you're not doing the Oscar death race and you're just listening to this, you know, just to kind of see my madness about this whole project, please, please, I implore you, go out and watch Parasite. It's one of the best movies of the year, for sure. Um, personally, I kind of hope it wins Best Picture, though, you know, that might be a long shot with foreign language films and all the other great contenders, but I would not be disappointed if this ended up taking that home uh, this year. Finally, let's wrap up the top, let's wrap up the podcast talking about one of the 
biggest surprises of the year, most controversial films of the year. Let's just say one of the craziest films of the year, Joker. So Joker, based on the uh, Batman villain of the same name, um, is current currently, according to GoldDerby.com, in the running for Best Picture, which is insane for a comic book movie, um, Best Actor uh, for Joaquin Phoenix's role as the Joker or Arthur Fleck, um, Best Adapted Screenplay, and for Cinematography. Joaquin Phoenix is also currently the favorite to win uh, for Best Actor. Uh, it premiered uh, at the Venice Film Festival August 31st, where surprisingly it took home the Golden Lion, which is the top prize of that film festival. It later premiered in the U.S. on October 4th, um, and this is kind of insane. The box office run for Joker has been nothing sort of miraculous um, for you know a mid fifty million dollar, which is you know a mid budget film. Um, it has gone on to be the first film to cross a uh, of an R rate, first R rated film to cross a billion dollars, which by default makes it the highest grossing R rated film of all time. Um, Within the within the DC film universe, I don't know whatever they're doing with that these days, but it's currently the third highest, having already beaten The Dark Knight, which again had Heath Ledger's Joker, who previously won an actor for Best Supporting Actor. Um, it's currently behind Dark Knight Rises and Aquaman. Um, but the crazy thing is that it did this, crossing a billion, getting to the third best uh, DC film um, without a China release. And frankly, it's unlikely it's ever going to actually beat uh, it's going to release in China just because of all the messaging about you know social unrest and and and, and so on. Um, the only other films to cross a billion dollars without a China release for reference is Pirates of the Caribbean two and again The Dark Knight. So you know this is already you know the highest grossing film without China at all, or it will be if it if it beats uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, and you know looking at the other billion dollar films frankly thus far you know ever released to the 44th film to do so there aren't really other films there that are you know dark character studies granted it is of a very popular comic book villain but there aren't a ton of you know major cgi sequences made there aren't a ton of crazy action sequences like you know one or two big chase sequences but you know not like a big fight choreographed sequence and it you know it's not an animated film either so this is pretty atypical um, the fact that it was sought on a $55 million budget, you know, makes this definitely the most profitable comic book film of all time with a 15 times return on investment and growing. And it's also the cheapest film to hit a billion dollars. The prior record was for Jurassic Park on $63 million. So, you know, a little bit of editorialization here. Um, you know, hopefully this kind of sends a message to Hollywood in general that you can create films that will be super successful if you know, with a mid-sized budget without having to blow out the bank, without having to cater to China's tastes, um, you know, so long as you focus on crafting a well-done story. And yeah, it does have the help of being based on the Joker. And, you know, when it came out, there was all this talk about potential mass shootings after the Dark Knight shooting uh, in Colorado, which is, you know, was obviously very terrible. But frankly, there were no there were no real incidents this time around with Joker. But obviously, you know, kind of any any press any news is is good for for publicity and marketing and you know with this uh with this success it already looks like director todd phillips which it blows my mind that you know the guy who directed the hangover series um was able to direct this but him and joaquin phoenix are you know i think they're on pay on on track to do a sequel to this so we'll see how that goes um you know talking about you know box office geeking aside which is one of my other hobbies when it comes to movie talk that aside um you know 
Joaquin Phoenix, first off, you know, let's talk with, with Joaquin Phoenix and his bid for best actor. You know, obviously he traditionally has he's he's for those who don't know, has kind of eschewed the uh award ceremony circuit, you know, not really paying attention to them. But frankly, like it's really hard to think of somebody who has a better chance of winning it than him. Again, crazy that it's for a comic book movie uh portrayal. But you know, the way he portrays the Joker as a broken man, not just of you know, he's crazy for crazy's sake or whatever, but like the way that everything kind of comes together and and ultimately causes him to crack um and become the Joker is is mind blowing. Um, you know, it's you completely forget who he is. The physic the physicality of the role, like he lost so much weight for this, um, that it was just and then the way that he contorts his body, the way he portray trace thing the way he laughs or which is you know obviously iconic crazy necessary for the joker the way he dances around the way he portrays somebody who just doesn't have con- full control over himself um when you know as an actor he does have complete control over himself that's amazing um you know just in general i think a lot of the theme i think you know talking about it as you know a film that oh it's for you know the insults or whatever to relate to and it's going to cause all i think that does a real big disservice to this film i think there's a conversation to be had about this film about you know kind of a lot of the same things with parasite um which again i won't spoil too much about Parasite, but class warfare about the rich and how they think about the poor you know how how it's not one thing that causes a man to break it's how society breaks down how um you know, we live in a society, right? But it's it's how everything, you know, the way mental health is talked about in here, the way, um, you know, class is discussed and, and the haves and the have-nots. You know, there's just so many similar themes between the two um, films. So it was kind of funny. I saw this uh, at the um, Village Cinema, uh, East City Cinemas East Village uh, here in New York, you know, on the same screen where I saw um, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I also saw this in 70 millimeter films. Um, on a Tuesday night, I think, because I actually had been uh, out of town when it initially premiered. But I saw this film the same weekend as Parasite. I thought Joker was going to be the best film of the weekend. Uh, I'm not saying Joker's a bad film. It's an amazing film. Definitely one of my top five for the year, I think. Um, but it's kind of funny seeing the parallels between this and Parasite. So that would make a pretty awesome doubleheader, frankly, if you're trying to run through all these films for the Oscar death race, um, seeing Joker and, and Parasite back-to-back. Even, there's even a lot of the same vis- visual iconography in here. Um, you know, in Joker, there's the those those kind of a motif of of steps going up and down the steps, and what that indicates for his mental wellness. Just kind of thinking about it, for me, I saw a lot of stuff in there with the way they used hallways to kind of portray, um, you know, where what he's going through, the way his mind works. Is kind of this is this is the thing I love about film, and this is what I really loved about Joker, just the motifs and the intentionality between behind every shot, behind you know every decision that the filmmakers made to portray the story not only through the accents not only through the acting but you know the set the design the cinematography the editing the music choices like there's something in here where you know again i don't want to spoil joker too much but you know joker can probably have some delusions it's, it's probably something. so pay attention to where the cello is um and that will be a tell on, on on certain things um you know within the score of the music itself so um, you know, I, I, I go to Comic Con every year, and I definitely saw this Joker and his portrayal, you know, there. And the movie had, you know, I think I'd come out that weekend of Comic Con, which is I, why I didn't see it that that initial weekend. Um, and the Joker was everywhere, and you know, I think it 
it does speak, I think, a lot to, you know, some as much as some people doesn't want to say it does, I think it speaks a lot to, you know, some of the themes of this of this of of this generation of mental wellness of um you know how everything how how income inequality works and and the way it affects not just you know on the surface level but how it kind of exacerbates pre-existing problems and it just grows and grows um oh there's something else that comes to mind just kind of like parallels between the film you know early and and after the film kind of showing the tra- like if this is a film about the the transformation of the joker down from Arthur Fleck to the Joker, if that's even reality, um, and what really happened. Just one take on the Joker. Um, what happens before and after is kind of, kind of parallel imagery, before and after the film. I think pay attention to that if you're looking for the film. And, you know, as with the Joker, it's his trademark that you don't really know his actual origin story. He was supposed to be a character who was kind of killed off, but ever since he kind of just stuck with the Batman, has kind of persisted in kind of a quasi, you don't really know what's real state with him. And, you know, this has gotten kind of rambly, but, you know, for the Joker, I think you don't know at the end. Like, is this actually what happened? Is this is him telling, saying what happened? But um, I don't know. I'm definitely interested to see where this goes. I definitely hope this film does amazingly. I definitely think Joaquin Phoenix to get the best actor, but we'll see. I don't think it'll win Best Picture, but um, imagine like this: what a what a society would be and would live in if Joker won Best Picture. Um, I mean, Black Panther got nominated last year, so you know, got up at one time, right? Um, so yeah, that's the Joker. So before we wrap up the show, uh, I'm just going to, you know, ramble a little bit about a film that's probably not going to get an Oscar nominated um, that I've seen recently. Because, you know, in addition to trying to do this crazy Oscar death face, I still, you know, want to actually enjoy films I see. And if there's good stuff coming out, which there's lots of still good stuff coming out, it's a great time to be into movies. Um, thank you, AMC A-list. Hashtag not sponsored. Hashtag please sponsor me. Um you know, to go see. So, you know, this weekend I actually went uh, with some friends to go watch Knives Out, um, which was, you know, you know, it's billed as like a whodunit murder mystery type thing. Um, but I definitely really enjoyed it. I think it's, it's a lot more than that. Um, there's a lot of twists. You know, I haven't watched a lot of, of whodunit type type movies. Actually, I've never seen the original Clue, which I probably should. Um, the most one I the most one I recently remember was the, the Poirot film. Um, I forget the name of, of the film, but it was another whodunit, crazy handlebar mustache. Anyway, um, Daniel Craig playing crazy, um, sorry, that's my neighbor knocking. Uh, Daniel Craig playing a detective with a crazy Southern KFC accent is, is amazing. All of the crazy actors, um, you know, all of, not crazy actors, all of the, the, the cast is ridiculous on this one. I think it might be, you know, aside from maybe Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, one of the, the most ridiculous casts I've seen this year in a film. Um, Anna de Armas, after I saw her after in Blade 1 in 2049, you know, definitely been looking forward to see more stuff from her, and she definitely delivered here as as Marta, who ends up being the lead. Um, again, murder mystery, which isn't really a murder mystery. They kind of do some twists on the format. I don't really want to spoil it if you do want to go and think it's a murder mystery, but definitely an enjoyable time. Um, if you want to break from the Oscar death race, uh, definitely go check out Knives Out. Um, that being said, um, you know, I'm always looking for some feedback. Um, you know, I'm going to post this on Reddit and the R Oscar, De- Oscar Death Race subreddit. So leave a comment there. Um, that's probably the best way to get feedback to me before until I actually set up like an email or something uh, where you can leave a, a comment or, or a suggestion. Um, but if you are interested, um, you know, uh, why don't you leave a comment? Uh, let me know how your Oscar Death Race is going, what you've seen, what you thought of the films. I discussed uh, on this episode so far. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll include some comments in the next episode. And definitely at the very end, you know, I'm definitely going to want to be at the end of this series taking 
all of the all of the best um, stories of the Oscar death race and the lengths that people go to, to complete their Oscar death race and kind of put that into the postmortem. Um, so yeah, um, next time, you know, I'll be featuring uh, Mirrored Story, uh, Jojo Rabbit, uh, The Farewell. Um, I have a flight uh, to get to do over this week for business, so I'm definitely going to be watching The Mirrored Story on there. I should probably try to watch The Irishman, though three and a half hours is really intimidating. Maybe I'll wait till the Christmas break to do that. Um, depending on whether or not I watch The Irishman, the fourth film will either be that or A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. So, you know, still four best picture films, you know, four, four down. Who knows how many to go since we don't know the nominees yet. Um, but yeah, um, uh, our music, uh, and just just a quick note, our intro, our intro and outro music uh, comes from Kevin MacLeod. Um, you can find his stuff at Inc. Uh, incompetech.filmmusic.io uh, that's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H dot filmmusic.io um, for you know his royalty free music so special uh, thanks to him uh, thanks to you for listening uh, I'm going to go ahead and set up now uh, I know you got movies to get to watch I got movies to get watching too um, but until next time uh, this has been the Oscar Death Race podcast uh, and don't stop until the credits stop rolling bye <laughs>